You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Mabel Chu finds out about the ups and downs of postural hypertension. Uh, one of the important things, because the patient has diabetes, is to ensure the patient doesn't have any neuropathy, because in low lighting circumstances, then patients can become unsteady, and that unsteadiness could mask or could be confused with um, the symptoms of postural hypotension. But before that, bean sprouts have been fingered as the cause of the E. coli infections that have caused the death of 39 people in Germany. But how did they track down the culprit? David Payne investigates the investigation. It's a microbiological detective story. How to track down the source of Germany's recent E. coli outbreak, which has killed dozens of people and left more than 700 with HUS, hemolytic uremic syndrome. The alarm was first raised on the 19th of May, when Hamburg's chief medical officer asked the Robert Koch Institute, the federal body responsible for disease control and prevention, to investigate a paediatric outbreak. The institute carried out a series of case control studies. These established that this was a very unusual outbreak. Among those identified at first were food-conscious, educated women. Unusual food suspects, milk and meat, were ruled out. Spanish cucumbers were wrongly identified as the likely source. Then, on June 10th, came the breakthrough. Organic bean sprouts from a farm in Lower Saxony were named as the likely culprit. A feature on bmj.com and in this week's print issue explains more. Here's Dr Gerard Krauser, who led the Institute's investigations, on how a restaurant recipe cohort study reached the parts that other studies could not reach. The big problem in those uh, specialised case control studies where you ask for a large number of items and, and also for a large period of time that people do not remember correctly what they have actually eaten. Yes. And that is particularly true in this outbreak because of three reasons. The first is that this infection and those HUS cases were quite affected um, as far as their uh, neurological symptoms are concerned. Right. So many cases could not well be interviewed. The second point is that we have an extraordinarily long incubation period. We had to ask not for a one-week period, but for a two-week period of consumption. Right. And the third thing is, if you ask for many different subtypes of condiments or ingredients, uh, then the probability of having false responses or remembering wrongly is very high. And by that time, there was so much discussion in the media on different items. There were the cucumbers, which then biased the recollection of the participants of those studies. Yes. So for all those reasons, we had to come up with a study design which would be more safe against recollection bias. And that was our recipe restaurant cohort study in which we did not rely very much on what the patients told us, but we relied more on what the kitchen chief explained to us how they prepare specific dishes. Yes. And the participants then only had to know what kind of meals they had ordered and if they have eaten it co- uh, completely or not. And this together was plotted in our, in our analysis. And you also used photographs, I believe, didn't you, of diners that had taken That was pictures. a little ex- extra item. It was, two cents of the word, a pittoresque little extra, uh, yes. extra item to kind of confirm and to kind of recapture the recollection of the participants. But it was not the major I- issue, the major methodological issue of the study. So the Health Protection Agency here in the UK has praised uh, the Robert Koch Institute for the speed at which you did the case control studies, but there's also been some criticism about the length of time it took you to narrow down the likely source of the outbreak. What do you say to that criticism? 
we have now analyzed our data and looked at exactly where the information delays were most noticeable. And one of the delays that is not that you cannot change uh, is the delay from the onset of the disease until the per person really goes to the physician. Yes. Um, there's some delay that could be reduced basically if uh, that this is part of the physician, how long does the physician take until they realize what kind of disease they have, so how soon and how often do they actually do microbiological testing. An astonishable long delay that we noticed now is, is from the diagnosis to the notification to the local health department. So. Mm. Physicians and hospitals have taken astonishingly long to report their cases, even though the law requires immediate notification that is within 24 hours. But our data now shows that oftentimes many, many days more. And then there's also an additional delay uh, from the point in time that it comes to the local health department until it reaches the national level. There, I must say, the law foresees that within a week it should reach the state level and which in another week from the state level to the federal level, but that is oftentimes much shorter. The bigger problem I see, I mean, while the immediate reporting can probably be solved quite quickly with a, with a small, with a change in the law and the change in technology, the increasing the compliance by the physicians to really notify all the cases and to do so early on and to apply uh, microbiological diagnostic testing more frequently. That is something that is more difficult to regulate and to change. Of course. So there's a, there's a message there for doctors. One thing that I'm a little bit concerned is yes. that much of the discussions is focusing very much on the notification. Delay. Right. I would be the one most eagerly waiting for something to change in this yes. case. But to be very honest, yes. the real challenge in this outbreak was, how should I phrase it politically correct? <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> the, the real challenge is really that... Uh, I think we were quite quickly in identifying and pointing towards the possible source via uh, epidemiological methods. Yes. Now, you've obviously been the lead agency in terms of the epidemiological investigation, but there was also some involvement from the food safety agencies, uh, both in Germany and across Europe. So are there any improvements that you'd like to see in terms of how the food industry, say, is regulated and how distribution channels are monitored? The problem that I see is that the food traceback lasted very long, and actually it's still lasting long. Uh, if it wouldn't have been for a more coincidental trace-forward approach of the Lower Saxony uh, uh, Agency, mm. whereby it was more coincidental than anything else that they traced sprouts forward from that farm, um, and then they were successful. If they hadn't done that, we would still not have been able to have a trace-back. So that, that poses questions on uh, how is food distribution organized and documented in Europe yes. nowadays and how is the technology available in the different agencies to quickly trace those issues back. Mm. I think that is a question that needs to be asked and that is, uh, to my astonishment, not being discussed very much in public. Right. Okay. Uh, it's, it's more a question in the, in the discipline, in the area of, of food safety and, and uh, and not so much in the area of, uh, of, of human public health. Yes. The, the, the 10th of June announcement was that was the breakthrough with the bean sprouts. Where are we now, uh, Dr. Krauser, in terms of how the cases are panning out? Presumably there's been a, a reduction in uh, reporting. We have a very, very clear reduction in reporting. Um, we have uh, still some new cases coming up, but some of them are delayed reported cases. So we, have, we are quite confident that the point source is not there anymore. Yes. We have identified this one farm in Lower Saxony, and that the farm is not producing anything anymore. So at this point, uh, this point source is, is neutralized. 
what we do not know at this point yet, how did it happen that sprouts from that farm were contaminated? Mm. Uh, there's still uh, different scenarios uh, equally possible, and uh, so far environmental and food and, and traceback investigations have not been able to identify uh, the one explanation. Well, Dr. Krauser, thank you very much for joining me today. Okay, you're welcome. And the feature that David has written is available online on bmj.com and in print this week. Now, Mabel Chu talks to the authors of a recent practice article about postural hypertension. I have with me in the studio Dr. Satya Palin and Professor Atkin from Hull York Medical School and Hull Royal Infirmary. They're here with me to discuss the investigation of postural hypotension. Gentlemen, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you. Let's start with a definition. Can you tell me what constitutes a formal diagnosis of postural hypotension? Yes, postural hypotension, it's also known as orthostatic hypotension, is defined as an abnormal decrease in blood pressure of at least 20 millimeter systolic and 10 millimeter diastolic within three minutes of standing upright. Now, we know it matters because it's common and it puts people at risk of falls and subsequent injuries such as hip fractures or head trauma. Is there any other reason why it might matter? It, it, it has, in studies, it has also shown that the postural hypertension is a risk factor for coronary events and mortality, especially in elderly people. And as you mentioned, it's very common in elderly people. The prevalence of orthostatic hypertension ranges from 6% among healthy elderly people to around 68% among patients hospitalized in a geriatric ward. Well, let's move on to a case. In your article, you mention the presentation of a 70-year-old man who presents with recurrent lightheadedness whenever he gets up at night to pass urine. And you note that he's recently been started on an alpha-adrenergic blocker, alfuzosin, uh, for prostatism. He's also got a history of well-controlled type 2 diabetes and is taking metformin and simvastatin. So history matters quite a lot in these situations. What sort of things would I need to ask him as his GP? Patient's history is of particular importance and has got a high diagnostic value. The most common culprits are medication, especially the diuretics, sedatives, centrally acting adrenergic blockers, peripherally acting adrenergic blockers, vasodilators and nitrates. A detailed history is very important. The most common symptom the people with having postural hypertension complaints is dizziness. They often describe it as a bit of lightheadedness on standing without without loss of consciousness. It can precipitate angina in susceptible people. Other associated symptoms include symptoms vague symptoms like fatigue, lethargy, palpitations. Okay, so you've elicited particular associated symptoms and he doesn't really have any of those. He is on an alpha adrenergic blocker um, which is on your hit list of uh, drugs that can cause postural hypotension. Is there anything else in his history that you'd like to know about? The alcohol intake, excess alcohol intake can cause postural hypertension and the other risk factors include a history of heart failure, diabetes, any ongoing acute illness, anemia or any neurological problems. 
sort of past medical history can give a clue. Okay, and we know he already has diabetes, so that's something else to keep in mind. Let's move on to the physical examination. What would the next step be there? The first step is to measure the blood pressure and heart rate after around 10 minutes of rest, repeated at 3 minutes after standing. Postural hypotension is considered significant, as mentioned before, if there is a reduction of blood pressure of more than 20 millimeters of mercury in systolic or more than 10 millimeters of mercury in diastolic is sustained at or beyond 3 minutes. Okay, you've confirmed the diagnosis. He does indeed have a postural drop in his blood pressure that's significant um, and a postural rise in his pulse at the same time. What else would we need to look for in the physical examination? The next step would be to assess the fluid status, to assess dehydration, such as dry mucosa, reduced skin turgor, or delayed capillary refill, low juvenile venous pulse. Okay, and presumably you're looking for signs of both fluid overload as well as dehydration, because as you mentioned, cardiac failure can be something else that can uh, cause postural hypotension. Are there any other features in um, assessing fluid status that you'd want to look for? Especially in elderly people, anemia should be looked into. Pala on exa clinical examination suggests anemia and blood loss. Anemia is very important to rule out. Unfortunately, clinical examination for anemia is remarkably unsatisfactory because often patients can be quite markedly anemic without actually showing any of the classical signs of the mucous membranes in the eyes uh, looking particularly pale or pallor of the skin. And therefore, high suspicion needs to be undertaken and the necessary for blood count. Okay. Uh, one of the important things because the patient has diabetes is to ensure the patient doesn't have any neuropathy because in low lighting circumstances, then patients can become unsteady and that unsteadiness could mask or could be confused with um, the symptoms of postural hypotension. Okay, now that's a useful point to note. Um, and we have to bear in mind that in someone with diabetes, there may not only be peripheral neuropathy, but autonomic neuropathy involved. That is absolutely correct. The two main aspects in diabetes tend to be the peripheral neuropathy, but autonomic neuropathy is, uh, can be a major problem and be related to the changes in the blood pressure effects. And are there any items in either the history or the physical examination that might point one to consider autonomic neuropathy? The other symptoms of autonomic neuropathy include maybe gustatory sweating, diarrhea, or symptoms of gastroparesis like vomiting, which could be looked into. We've confirmed there's a diagnosis of postural hypertension by checking his blood pressure and pulse sitting and standing. Um, we've assessed his fluid status. He doesn't appear to be dehydrated or in fluid overload. Um, now, is there anything else apart from a full cardiovascular and full uh, and fluid examination, fluid status examination, we would need to look for? A focused neurological examination may sometimes give evidence of any previous cardiovascular disease, neuropathy, or any movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease, which can coexist with postural hypertension. Okay. So um, let's move on to laboratory tests. Um, are there any routine tests we ought to be doing for such a patient? The routine test 
would be a full blood count which and the reduced hemoglobin concentration or a reduced paxil volume and microcytic hypochromic anemia can suggest postural hypertension is likely to be caused by postural by blood loss if a biochemical profile in which a raised urea concentration in relation to creatinine such as most likely dehydration is caused by fluid or blood loss or diuretics a raised vital count and inflammatory markers suggesting the current infection causing postural hypertension Addison's disease is a rare cause of hypo, of postural hypertension hyponatremia or hyperkalemia may, may point towards hypercortisolemia as the cause of postural hypertension okay so a low sodium or a high potassium level it's very important to investigate low sodiums whatever the cause and the reason is because a low sodium has been associated with increased falls in the elderly and that might be independent of any postural symptoms. Okay, and how might you take it further if need be? If you're suspecting Addison's disease, the next step would be to do a short snapping test and a normal rise in cortisol of the 250 micrograms of snapping excludes Addison's disease. So, to summarize, the history in a patient with postural hypotension matters a lot. We need to work out whether it is dizziness or lightheadedness that's associated with posture, with standing up. You've mentioned looking for associated symptoms, as well as, as culprits such as uh, particular drugs, alcohol, and other comorbidities such as cardiac failure and acute illness of some sort and diabetes. You've talked about items to look for on physical examination and making sure that we confirm the diagnosis of postural hypotension, uh, an abnormal fall in blood pressure on standing of at least 20 millimetres systolic and 10 millimetres diastolic within three minutes in the upright position, and looking at things like fluid status, neurological conditions or cardiovascular problems that might be the cause of the hypotension. And you've mentioned routine testing such as a full blood count, electrolytes and urea and creatinine levels and looking particularly for uh, signs of hyponatremia or hypokalemia uh, which may point occasionally to um, Addison's disease. So in this patient, this 70 year old man who's getting symptoms clearly due to postural hypotension, what would you do first? Having uh, excluded Addison's disease, we know he has diabetes, we know he's taking these drugs. From a pragmatic point of view, that whilst the investigation is very important in determining what the cause of the patient's postural hypotension is, often in practice, if an individual drug is identified associated with postural hypotension, then the most important thing is to actually stop that drug or at least replace it with a drug that is perhaps less likely to cause postural hypotension. Often pragmatically once that drug is removed or stopped and if there's a reversal of the hypotension then one can be reassured of the cause. Should the cause of the hypotension not be determined from stopping the drug then further evaluation is likely to be necessary. Okay, so you would want to not only stop the drug but get the patient back and reassess, reevaluate. Absolutely, that's critical. And that reevaluation and stopping the drug obviously depends on the half life of the drug. But in real terms, um, if the patient was brought back one week after cessation of that medication, 
one could easily reevaluate the patient. Thank you both for that enlightening approach to somebody with postural hypotension, which is such a common problem in, in clinical practice. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week asking how great a problem is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.